The Road to Wigan Pier by George Orwell Chapter 1 The first sound in the mornings was the clumping of the mill girls' clogs down the cobbled street. Earlier than that, I suppose, were the factory whistles, which I was never awake to hear. There were generally four of us in the bedroom, and a beastly place it was, with that defiled, impermanent look of rooms that are not serving their rightful purpose. Years earlier, the house had been an ordinary dwelling-house, and when the brookers had taken it and fitted it out as a tripe shop and a lodging-house, they had inherited some of the more useless pieces of furniture and had never had the energy to remove them. We were therefore sleeping in what was still recognisably a drawing-room. Hanging from the ceiling there was a heavy glass chandelier on which the dust was so thick that it was like fur. And covering most of one wall there was a huge, hideous piece of junk, something between a sideboard and a hall stand, with lots of carving and little drawers and stripes of looking-glass. And there was a once gaudy carpet ringed by the slop pails of years, and two gilt chairs with berth seats, one of those old-fashioned horsehair armchairs which you slide off when you try to sit on them. The room had been turned into a bedroom by thrusting four squalid beds in amongst the other wreckage. My bed was in the right-hand corner, on the nearest side of the door. There was another bed across the floor, a bit jammed hard against it, and it had to be in that position to allow the door to open, so that I had to sleep with my legs doubled up. If I straightened them out, I kicked the occupant of the other bed in the small of the back. He was an elderly man named Mr. Riley, a mechanic of sorts and employed on top at one of the coal pits. Luckily he had to go to work at five in the morning, so I could uncoil my legs and have a couple of hours proper sleep after he was gone. In the bed opposite, there was a Scotch miner who had been injured in a pit accident, a huge chunk of stone pitting him to the ground, and it was a couple of hours before they could lever it off. He'd received £500 compensation. He was a big, handsome man of forty, with grizzled hair and a clipped moustache, more like a sergeant major than a miner, and he would lie in bed till late in the day, smoking a short pipe. The other bed was occupied by a succession of commercial travellers, newspaper, canvases and higher-purchase touts, who generally stayed for a couple of nights. It was a double bed, and much the best in the room. I'd slept in it myself my first night there, but had been manoeuvred out of it to make room for another lodger. I believe all newcomers spent their first night in the double bed which was used, so to speak, as bait. All the windows were kept tight shut, with a red sandbag jammed in the bottom, and in the morning the room stank like a ferret's cage. You did not notice it when you got up, but if you went out of your room and came back in, the smell hit you in the face with a smack. I never discovered how many bedrooms the house contained, but strange to say, there was a bathroom, dating from before the Brooker's time. Downstairs there was the usual kitchen, living room with a huge 
open range, burning night and day, it was lighted only by a skylight, for on one side of it was the shop, and the other the larder, which was opened into some dark subterranean place where the tripe was stored. Partly blocking the door of the larder, there was a shapeless sofa upon which Mrs. Brooker, our landlady, lay permanently ill, festooned in grimy blankets. She had a big, pale, yellow, anxious face. No one knew for certain what was the matter with her. I suspect that her only real trouble was overeating. In front of the fire there was almost always a line of damp washing, and in the middle of the room was a big kitchen table at which the family and all the lodgers ate. I never saw this table completely uncovered, but I saw its various wrappings at different times. At the bottom there was a layer of old newspapers stained by Worcester sauce, and above that a sheet of sticky white oilcloth, and above that a green serge cloth, and above that a coarse linen cloth, never changed, and seldom taken off. Generally the crumbs from the breakfast were still on the table at supper. I used to get to know individual crumbs by sight, and watch their progress up and down the table from day to day. The shop was a narrow, cold sort of room. On the outside of the window a few white letters, relics of ancient chocolate advertisements, were scattered like stars. Inside there was a slab upon which lay the great white folds of tripe, and the grey flocculent stuff known as black tripe, and the ghostly translucent feet of pigs ready boiled. It was the ordinary tripe and pea shop, and not much else was stocked except bread, cigarettes, and tin stuff. Teas were advertised in the window, but if the customer demanded a cup of tea, he was usually put off with excuses. Mr. Brooker, though out of work for two years, was a miner by trade, but he and his wife had been keeping shops of various kinds as sidelines all their lives. At one time they'd had a pub, but they had lost their license to allowing gambling on the premises. And I doubt whether any of their businesses had ever paid. They were the kind of people who run a business chiefly in order to have something to grumble about. Mr. Booker was a large, dark, small-boned, sour, Irish-looking man, and astonishingly dirty. I don't think I ever once saw his hands clean. And as Mrs. Booker was now an invalid, he prepared most of the food. Like all people with permanently dirty hands, he had a peculiarly intimate, lingering manner of handling things. If he gave you a slice of bread and butter, there was always a black thumbprint on it. Even in the early morning, when he descended into the mysterious den behind Mrs. Booker's sofa and fished out the tripe, his hands were already black. I heard dreadful stories from the other lodgers about the place where the tripe was kept. Black beetles were said to swarm there. I did not know how often fresh consignments of tripe were ordered, but it was at long intervals. For Mrs. Booker, they used date events by it. They dated the events by it. 
Let me see how I have in three lots of frozen tripe, that is, since that happened. Uh-huh, we had uh, lodges. Uh, we're never given tripe to eat. At the time, I imagined that this was because tripe was too expensive. I've since thought that it was merely because we knew too much about it. The brookers never ate tripe themselves, I noticed. The only permanent lodgers were the Scotch miner, Mr Riley, two old-age pensioners, and an unemployed man on the PAC named Joe. He was the kind of person who has no surname. The Scotch miner was a bore when you got to know him. Like so many unemployed men, he spent too much time reading newspapers, and if you did not head him off, he would discourse for hours about such things as the yellow peril, chunk murders, astrology, and the conflict between religion and science. The old-age pensioners had, as usual, been driven from their homes by the means test. They handed their weekly ten shillings over to the brookers, and in return they got the kind of accommodation that you'd expect for ten shillings, that is, a bed in the attic, and meals chiefly of bread and butter. One of them was of a superior type, and was dying of some malignant disease, cancer, I believe. He only got out of bed on the days when he was to draw his pension. The others called by everyone, the other called by everyone old Jack, was an ex-miner, aged 78, who had worked well over 50 years in the pits. He was alert and intelligent, but curiously enough he seemed only to remember his boyhood experiences, and to have forgotten all about the modern mining machinery and improvements. He used to tell me tales of fights with savage horses in the narrow galleries underground, and when he heard that I was arranging to go down several coal miles mines, he was contemptuous, and declared that a man of my size, six foot two and a half, would never manage the travelling, as it was no use telling him that the travelling was better than it used to be. But he was friendly to everyone, and he used to give us all a fine shout of, "'Good night, boys!' as he crawled up the stairs to his bed somewhere under the rafters. What I most admired about old Jack was that he never cadged. He was generally out of tobacco towards the end of the week, but he always refused to smoke anyone else's. The Brookers had insured the lives of both old-age pensioners with one of the tanner-a-week company. It was said that they were overheard anxiously asking the insurance tout how long people lived when they got cancer. Joe, like the Scotsman, was a great reader of newspapers and spent almost his entire day in the public library. He was the typical unmarried, unemployed man, a derelict-looking, frankly ragged creature with a round, almost childish face on which there was a naively naughty expression. He looked more like a neglected little boy than a grown-up man, and I suppose it's the complete lack of responsibility that makes so many of these men look younger than their ages. From Joe's appearance, I took him to be about 28. I was amazed to learn that he was 43. 
He had a love of resounding phrases and was very proud of the astuteness with which he'd avoided getting married. He often said to me, Matrimonial chains is a big item, evidently feeling this to be a very subtle and portentous remark. His total income was 15 shillings a week, and he paid out six or seven to the brookers for his bed. I sometimes used to see him making himself a cup of tea over the kitchen fire, but for the rest he got his meals somewhere out of doors. It was mostly slices of bread and marge, and packets of fish and chips, I suppose. Besides these, there was a flourishing clientele of commercial travellers, of the poorer sort, travelling actors, always common in the north because most of the larger pubs hire variety artists in the weekends. The newspaper canvassers. The newspaper canvassers were a type which I never met before. Their job seemed to me to be so hopeless and so appalling that I wondered how anyone could put up with such a thing when prison was a possible alternative. They were employed mostly by weekly or Sunday papers, and they were sent from town to town, provided with maps and given a list of streets, which they had to work each day. If they failed to secure a minimum of 20 orders a day, they got the sack. So long as they kept up their 20 orders a day, they received a small salary, £2 a week. I think on any order over the 20, they drew a tiny commission. The thing is not as impossible as it sounds, because in working-class districts, every family takes in a tuppenny weekly paper and changes it every few weeks. But I doubt whether anyone keeps a job of that kind for long. The newspapers engage poor, desperate wretches, out-of-work clerks and commercial travellers, and the like, who for a while make frantic efforts to keep their sales up to the minimum. And then, as the deadly work wears them down, they are sacked, and fresh men are taken on. I got to know two who were employed by one of the more notorious weeklies. Both of them were middle-aged men with families to support, and one of them was a grandfather. They were on their feet ten hours a day, working their appointed streets and then busy late into the night, filling in blank return forms for some swindle that their paper was running. One of those schemes by which you are given a set of crockery if you take out six-week subscription and send a two-shilling postal order as well. The fat one, the grandfather, used to fall asleep with his head on a pile of forms. Neither of them could afford the pound a week which the brookers charged for full board. They used to pay a small sum for their beds, and make shamefaced meals in the corner of the kitchen of bacon and bread and margarine, which they stored in their suitcases. The Brookers had large numbers of sons and daughters, most of whom had long since fled from home. Some were in Canada. At Canada, as Mrs Brooker used to put it, there was only one son living nearby, a large pig-like young man employed in a garage who frequently came to the house for his meals. His wife was there all day, and with two children, and most of the cooking and laundry was done by her and Emmy, the fiancé of another son who was in London. Emmy was a fair-haired, sharp-nosed, unhappy-looking girl who worked at one of the mills for some starvation wage, but nevertheless 
spend all her evenings in bondage in the booker's house. I gathered that the marriage was constantly being postponed and would probably never take place, but Mrs. Booker had already appropriated Emmy as a daughter-in-law and nagged her in that peculiar, watchful, loving way that invalids have. The rest of the housework was done, or not done, by Mr. Booker. Mrs. Booker, seldom held, rose from her sofa in the kitchen. She spent the night there as well as the day, and was too ill to do anything except eat stupendous meals. It was Mr. Brooker who attended to the shop, giving the lodgers their food and did out the bedrooms. He was always moving with incredible slowness from one hated job to another. Often the beds were still unmade at six in the evening, and at any hour of the day you were liable to meet Mr. Brooker on the stairs, carrying a full chamber pot, which he gripped with his thumb well over the rim. In the mornings he sat by the fire with a tub of filthy water peeling potatoes at the speed of a slow-motion picture. I never saw anyone who could peel potatoes with quite such an air of brooding resentment. You could see the hatred of this bloody woman's work, as he called it, fermenting inside him, a kind of bitter juice. He was one of those people who can chew their grievances like a cud. Of course, as I was indoors a good deal, I heard all about the Brooker's woes, and how everyone swindled them and was ungrateful to them, and how the shop did not pay, and the lodging-house hardly paid, and by local standards they were not so badly off, for in some way I did not understand Mr. Brooker was dodging the means test and drawing an allowance from the PAC, but their chief pleasure was talking about their grievance to anyone who would listen. Mrs. Brooker used to lament by the hour lying on her sofa a soft mound of fat and self-pity, saying the same things over and over again. We don't seem to get no customers nowadays. I don't know how it is. The tripes just are laying there day after day. And such beautiful tripe it is too. Does seem hard, don't it now? Etc., etc., etc. All Mrs. Brooker's laments ended with, It does seem hard, don't it now? Like the refrain of a ballad. Certainly it was true that the shop did not pay. The whole place had the unmistakable, dusty, fly-blown air of a business which is going down. But it would have been quite useless to explain to them why nobody came to the shop, even if one had the face to do it. Neither was capable of understanding that last year's dead blue bottles supine in the shop window are not good for trade. But the thing that really tormented them was the thought of those two old-age pensioners living in their house, usurping floor space, devouring food, and paying only ten shillings a week. I doubt whether they were really losing money over the old-age pensioners, though certainly the profit on ten shillings a week must have been very small. But in their eyes the two old men were a kind of dreadful parasite who had fastened on them and were living on their charity. Old Jack they could just tolerate because he kept out of doors most of the day, but they really hated the bedridden one, Hooker by name. Mr. Brooker had a queer way of pronouncing his name, without the H 
and with a long U. Uka. What tales I heard about old Uka and his fractious and the nuisance of making his bed and the way he wouldn't eat this and wouldn't eat that, his endless ingratitude and above all the selfish obstinacy with which he refused to die. The Brookers were quite openly pining for him to die, and when that happened they could at least draw the insurance money. They seemed to feel him there, eating their substance day after day, as though he had been living a living worm in their bowels. Sometimes Mr. Brooker would look up from his potato peeling, catch my eye, jerk his head with a look of inexpressible bitterness towards the ceiling, towards old Ooker's room. It's a bloody ain't it, he would say. And there was no need to say any more. I'd already heard about old Hooker's ways already. But the Brookers had grievances of one kind and another against all of their lodgers, myself included, no doubt. Joe being on the PAC was practically in the same category as the old age pensioners. The Scotsman paid a pound a week when he was indoors most of the day, and they didn't like him always hanging round the place, as they put it. The newspaper canvases were out all day, but the Brookers bore them a grudge for bringing in their own food. And even Mr. Riley, their best lodger, was in disgrace because Mrs. Brooker said that he woke her up when he came downstairs in the morning. They couldn't, they complained, perpetually get the kind of lodgers they wanted. Good class, commercial gentlemen who paid full board and were out all day. Their ideal lodger would have been somebody who paid 30 shillings a week and never came indoors except to sleep. I have noticed the people who let their lodgings nearly always hate their lodgers. They want their money, but they look on them as intruders and have a curiously watchful, jealous attitude which at bottom is a determination not to let the lodger make himself too much at home. It's an inevitable result of the bad system by which the lodger has to live in someone else's house without being one of the family. The meals at the Brooker's house were uniformly disgusting. For breakfast you got two rashers of bacon and a pale fried egg and bread and butter, which had often been cut overnight and always had thumb marks on it. However tactfully I tried, I could never induce Mr. Brooker to let me cut my own bread and butter. He would hand me the slice, slice by slice, each slice gripped firmly under that broad black thumb. For dinner, there were generally those threepenny steak puddings which were sold ready-made in tins, and these were part of the stock of the shop, I think, and boiled potatoes and rice pudding. For tea, there was more bread and butter and frayed-looking sweet cakes which were probably bought as stales from the baker. For supper, there was the pale, flabby Lancashire cheese and biscuits, the Brookers never called these biscuits biscuits. They always referred to them reverently as cream crackers. Have another cream cracker, Mr. Riley. You'll like a cream cracker with your cheese. Thus glossing over the fact that there was only cheese for supper. Several bottles of Worcester sauce and a half-full jar of marmalade lived permanently on the table. It was usual to souse everything, even a piece of cheese, 
with Worcester sauce. But I never saw anyone brave enough to lift the lid on the marmalade jar, which was an unspeakable mess of stickiness and dust. Mrs. Brooker had her meals separately, but also took snacks from any meal that happened to be going, and manoeuvred with great skill for what she called the bottom of the pot, meaning the strongest cup of tea. She had a habit of constantly wiping her mouth on one of her blankets. Towards the end of my stay, she took to tearing off strips of newspaper for this purpose, and in the morning of the floor was often littered with crumpled up balls of slimy paper, which lay there for hours. The smell of the kitchen was dreadful, but, as with that of the bedroom, you cease to notice it after a while. It struck me that this place must be fairly normal, as lodging houses in the industrial areas go. From the whole, the lodgers did not complain. The only one who ever did so, to my knowledge, was a little black-haired, sharp-nosed cockney, a traveller for a cigarette firm. He'd never been in the north before, and I think that, till recently, he'd been in better employ and was used to staying in commercial hotels. This was his first glimpse of really low-class lodgings, the kind of place in which the poor tribe of touts and canvassers have to shelter upon their endless journeys. In the mornings we were dressing, we had slept in the double bed, of course, I saw him looking around the desolate room with a sort of wandering aversion. He caught my eye and suddenly divined that I was a fellow southerner. "'They're filthy bloody bastards,' he said feelingly. After that he packed his suitcase, went downstairs, and with great strength of mind told the brookers that this was not the kind of house he was accustomed to, that he was leaving immediately.' The Brookers could never understand why. They were astonished and hurt. The ingratitude of it, leaving them like that for no reason after a single night. Afterwards they discussed it over and over again in all its bearings. It was added to their store of grievances. On the day where there were a full chamber pot under the breakfast table, I decided to leave. The place was beginning to depress me. It was not only the dirt, the smells, and the vile food, but the feeling of stagnant, meaningless decay, of having got down into some subterranean place where people go creeping round and round, just like black beetles in an endless muddle of slovened jobs and mean grievances. The most dreadful thing about people like the Brookers is the way that they say the same things over and over again. It gives you the feeling that they are not real people at all, but a kind of ghost, forever rehearsing the same futile rigmarole. In the same end, Mrs. Brooker's self-pitying talks, always the same complaints, over and over, always ending with a tremulous whine of, It does seem hard, don't it now? Revolted me even more than her habit of wiping her mouth with bits of newspaper. But it's no use saying that people like the Brookers are just disgusting and trying to put them out of mind. But if they exist in ten and hundreds of thousands, they are one of the characteristic by-products of the modern world. You cannot disregard them if you accept the civilization that produced them, for this is part, at least, 
of what industrialism has done for us. Columbus sailed the Atlantic. The first steam engines tottered into motion. The British squares stood firm under the French guns at Waterloo, and the one-eyed scoundrels of the 19th century praised God and filled their pockets. And this is where it all led, to labyrinthine slums and dark back kitchens with sickly, ageing people creeping round and round like black beetles. It's a kind of duty to see and smell such places now and again, especially to smell them, lest you forget that they exist, though perhaps it's better not to stay there for too long. The train bore me away, although the monstrous scenery of slag heaps, chimneys, piled scrap iron, foul canals, paths of cindery, mud, crisscrossed by the prints of clogs. This was March, but the weather had been horribly cold, and everywhere there were mounds of blackened snow. As we moved slowly through the outskirts of the town, we passed row after row of little grey slum houses running at right angles to the embankment. At the back of one of the houses, a young woman was kneeling on the stones, poking a stick up the leaden waste pipe which ran from the sink inside, which I suppose was blocked. I had time to see everything about her, her sacking apron, her clumsy clogs, her arms reddened by the cold. She looked up at the train as it passed, and I was almost near enough to catch her eye. She had a round, pale face, the usual exhausted face of a slum girl who is twenty-five and looks forty, thanks to miscarriages and drudgery. And it wore, for the second in which I saw it, the most desolate, hopeless expression that I have ever seen. It struck me then that we were mistaken when we say that it isn't the shame same for them as it would be for us, and that people bred in the slums can imagine nothing but the slums. For what I saw in her face was not the ignorant suffering of an animal. She knew well enough what was happening to her, understood as well as I did how dreadful a destiny it was to be kneeling there in the bitter cold on the slimy stones of a slum backyard, poking a stick up a foul drain-pipe. But quite soon the train drew away into the open country, and that seemed strange, almost unnatural, as though the open country had been a kind of a park, for in the industrial areas one always feels that the smoke and the filth must go on for ever, that no part of the earth's surface can escape them. In a crowded, dirty little country like ours one takes defilement almost for granted, Slag heaps and chimneys seem a more normal, portable landscape than grass and trees. And even in the depths of the country where you drive your fork into the ground, you half expect to leave up a broken bottle or a rusty can. But out here the snow was untrodden, and it lay so deep that only the tops of the stone boundary walls were showing, winding over the hills like black paths. I remember that D. H. Lawrence, writing of the same landscape, or another nearby, said that the snow-covered hills rippled away into the distance 
like muscle. It was not the simile that would have occurred to me. To my eye, the snow and the black walls were more like a white dress with black piping running across it. Although the snow was hardly broken, the sun was shining brightly, and behind the shut windows of the carriage it seemed warm. According to the almanac, this was spring, and a few of the birds seemed to believe it. For the first time in my life, in a bare patch beside the line, I saw rooks copulating. They did it on the ground, and not, as I should have expected, in a tree. The manner of courtship was curious. The female stood with her beak open, and the male walked round her and appeared to be feeding her. I had hardly been in the train half an hour. It seemed a very long way from the brooker's back kitchen to the empty slopes of snow, the bright sunshine, and the big, gleaming birds. The whole of the industrial districts are really one enormous town, of about the same population as Greater London, but fortunately of much larger area, so that even in the middle of them there is still room for patches of cleanness and decency. That's an encouraging thought. In spite of hard trying, a man has not yet succeeded in doing his dirt everywhere. The earth is so vast and still so empty that even in the filthiest heart of civilization you find fields where the grass is green instead of grey, and perhaps if you looked for them you might find even streams with live fish in them instead of salmon tins. For quite a long time, perhaps another twenty minutes, the train was rolling through open country before the villa civilization began to close in upon us again, and then the outer slums, and then the slag heaps, belching chimneys, blast furnaces, canals and gasometers of another industrial town. <laughs>